close to, uh, to John 12 or 13, as we continue to worship our awesome God. And as we continue to think about what has happened so far uh, in John chapter 13, Jesus has just washed the feet of his disciples. And this is an important piece of the context of what Jesus is about to give, a new commandment that he's about to give to his disciples. It creates a contrast of his actions with what Judas has done and is doing, who will betray Jesus. He calls his followers to serve each other as he has served us, and even how he served uh, the, the one who he would betray. But now he gives a new command in this context. And as we do that, if you have your Bibles with you, let us continue to worship our awesome God. Starting in John chapter 13, verse 21, the word of the Lord says this, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he said, and one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning against, uh, back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread. And when I have dipped it, so when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then, after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. And Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that Judas, because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. When he had get, gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. And this is the word of the Lord. Let me pray. Father God, I thank you for this opportunity we have to continue to worship you through the opening of your word, through the preaching of your word. Lord, I pray that you are indeed glorified. And Lord, there are many churches that are gathering in the same way we are declaring who you are from your word. So Lord, I pray for the gospel preaching churches here in London, and specifically I think of Compass Community Church, one of our sister churches, and Pastor Joey, and the elders there, Lord. I pray that you give them wisdom as they seek to shepherd the flock that you have entrusted to them. I pray that you would bless them as they continue to seek to be disciples who make disciples of Jesus Christ. But Lord, as we continue to worship you, Lord, I pray indeed that you are glorified, 
And God, there is absolutely no way that I can do this on my own. So Lord, may you make this turn out well for your glory. So Lord, by your spirit, help me to preach this sermon with what is needed. Use this sermon, God, to bring glory to your name above all things. Joy to your people and salvation to the lost. And amen. So John 13. We see three things that are coming through in this, as my title suggests. We see treachery. We see uh, command, and we also see denial. In verses 21 to 30, we see Jesus and his heart is breaking about over what is about to happen, what is about to come. And he says that in verse 21, that John, the writer of this gospel, says, After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit, and he testified. Do you think that Jesus should have been all stoic when he found out about these things? You know, the stiff upper lip sort of idea? Jesus was 100% human, and his spirit was troubled. And I think sometimes we would expect him to be dispassionate about the traitor, maybe even angry, or maybe even vindictive towards him. Yet Jesus has washed the feet of the one he knows will betray him. This isn't even a question or a question mark situation. He knows specifically that Judas will betray him. Yet he has washed his feet And he knows exactly what is about to happen. He said this back in verse 18, as we looked at that a couple of weeks ago. And Jesus was troubled in his spirit. Literally, he was caused to be moved. He was shaken or stirred. Someone in his inner circle, a close friend of his, a confidant, one he washed his feet, will be the very one who would give him a kiss of death. Yet Jesus does this. Yet Jesus gives his command in light of these things. Jesus isn't troubled just because he knows what is about to happen, but he also knows what is going to happen to someone he loves. And I think right off the bat, one of these things that we have to think about is some of us think that we're alone and that we somehow have nobody that understands. But Hebrews is very clear that we have a high priest who is Jesus who can sympathize. We've all been betrayed or hurt at some point. And Jesus understands, or God understands. And the question is, is, will you trust him as he walks with you through those times? But John uses the same word, the word troubled, even in, the, in verse four, or chapter 14 of verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. And at that moment, we see Jesus has just rebuked Peter. And right after that, he comes and he gives this command to trust in God. And the agony that Jesus is going through is only the first fruits of the agony he will go through the same, at that same evening in the Garden of Gethsemane. And you have to ask yourself, is why does Judas betray him, but, not, but John leans into Jesus' chest? Now, what's the difference between these two men? They both, they both were with Jesus. They both saw Jesus. They both walked with Jesus. They saw firsthand all of those amazing miracles. They were the ones that were passing out the baskets of food as it overflowed to 5,000 people. They saw him raise Lazarus from the dead, the blind sea. They saw the intimate relationships and Jesus teaching and discipling them and taking personal responsibility for them. 
Why is there such a difference between these men? And there's an amazing contrast that's being created, but it can only be explained by God's sovereign grace, which can explain the differences. They both had the same interactions with Jesus. One rejects him and one leans into him. See, Jesus is fully engaged as we continue on in the flow of the events. He is not attempting to stay above the fray as though he couldn't be bothered with some petty concerns of of mere mortals. And something that is clear as we look at this, in spite of what Jesus knows Judas will do, Jesus loves Judas. So when Jesus is troubled... It is because of the both of the, the, the evilness, the, the pure evil of the treachery. Can you imagine the agony that is going on in his heart as he looks at his friends? One of his twelve, his inner circle, and he knows that that person is going to betray him. It's because of both the evil of the treachery, the tragic choice of one with whom he has spent so much time with, but also the weight of knowing what was about to happen. It all troubled Jesus. What a great testimony of his humanity. And then he clearly, he he testifies, he clearly, emphatically, he boldly, publicly proclaims what he says there. In verse, in verse 21, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The outcome of that is in verse 22, with uncertainty, the disciples are looking at each other going, uh, is it me? Am, am I the one? This is a description that has shown up throughout the Bible. So Judas has hidden his treachery so carefully that even the people that are walking with him, his other fellow friends, his other fellow disciples, did not know what was happening. Even in Matthew 26, verse 22, it tells us that each person thought it was their problem. They didn't know. And even Judas says it too in Matthew 26 to cover his tracks, but Jesus knows his heart. It hurts when someone who seems like they were part of us or part of you walks away, doesn't it? But that's why Jesus talks about the parable of the sower of the seeds in Matthew 13. In verse 23, John, Peter kind of comes up and he kind of says, Psst, 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 John, go ask, go ask what's going on here. So as they were leaning at table, this is quite a, an interesting way of eating. I've done it before. Uh, when I was in Jordan with the Bedouins, you kind of lean down on the ground and you kind of eat with your, with your hand and not your left hand. But as he leans into you, he's literally leaning against Jesus. He leans into him. And the description there is the disciple whom Jesus loved. And sometimes I thought it was kind of a little pretentious of John to describe himself as that. Because it's John who's writing this, and he says of himself, the one whom Jesus loved. I was like, well, doesn't Jesus love all of his disciples? Well, this is a description that, show, that shows up throughout the Gospel of John. And this doesn't mean that jo- Jesus didn't love the other disciples in the same way, but shows a specific affection for John. He will be the, one, uh, the only one of the twelve that stood before the cross as Jesus died for our sins. He's the only one that Jesus puts into care, his own mother. 
And I think it's also another way of John saying that nothing else needs to be said but that Jesus loves him as he did so many others. So Jesus responds to, to John's question and he says, the person whom I dip this morsel in and I give that morsel to, that is the one who's going to betray me. As he says in verse 26, so when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas. Uh, there's some sort of misconception sometimes that the morsel was used as a catalyst for Satan to enter into him. But if we looked just a few verses before that, we see that Judas already had in his mind to betray. But, uh, but that's not what is happening here. Once again, to give a morsel was to put someone in a place of honor, a place of love. And Jesus comes and he gives this morsel to Judas and he's essentially saying, are you sure, Judas? Are, are you sure you want to do this? Are you going to go down this route? An act of love by Jesus. And Jesus handing the bread to Judas was a final gesture of supreme love. I like how this one commentary put it. It said it this way. And that final act of love becomes with a terrible immediacy the decisive movement of judgment. At this moment, we are witnessing the climax of that action of sifting, of separation, of judgment, which has been the central theme in John's account of the public ministry of Jesus. So the final gesture of affection precipitates the final surrender of Judas to the power of darkness. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has neither understood it nor mastered it. So as Judas receives that morsel, but he does not receive the love. Instead of breaking him and urging him to contrition, it hardens his resolve. It's at that moment he has given himself completely over to Satan. And Satan enters into him, as verse 27 says. See, Judas refused, refuses Jesus, and the outcome of that has it, open, has it opening up his heart to the control of Satan. He is still responsible, but has surrendered to the dominion of evil. And Jesus already talks about this in John 8, verse 34, when he says, Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. So though Satan had earlier put the desire to betray Christ in Judas' heart, Satan himself now enters into Judas with a complete and dominant feature. And actions follow. And as Jesus responds, he says, Judas, don't hesitate. Go do what you're about to do. This is an amazing display of Jesus' control over the situation. Because let us not forget that John 10 says, no one takes it from me, as Jesus says, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again, and this charge I have received from my Father. 
Jesus won't hinder Judas from doing what he wants to do. And this is all under God's sovereign providence. Judas may as well get on with his treachery and be done with it. Don't hesitate anymore, he says. And there's this interesting line right here at the end of that little section. In verse 30, as he takes that bread and he immediately goes out, Judas immediately goes out, and it says, and it was night. It's an interesting description. Obviously, it was night. It was supper time. Why? It's not only the temporal that it was actually nighttime, but it's symbolic as well, pointing to the state of Judas's soul. It was night. There's a couple of things that I hope you're seeing in this. One is the danger of habitual sin and what that points to. But what it po- but because it points to the state and the other the state of your heart. But the other thing is this is that the love Jesus has for even the one who would betray him, because it sets the stage for the command that Jesus gives in this next section. You ever thought about this? I don't know how many times I grew up, because I grew up in the church. I don't know how many times I've heard this passage, but never within the context of the narrative. Jesus gives this next command in verse 31 to 35, the love command, this new command in verses 31 to 35 in the context of Judas's betrayal. This isn't some sort of command that doesn't have any weight behind it. It's not like, oh, Jesus, yeah, I get it. We're supposed to love one another. There's a weight that comes from this. This is the command given in light of what has happened and what will happen that Judas will betray. And how can Jesus talk like this in that certain circumstances? And Jesus can talk like this because he understands what Romans 8:28 says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, And that God works all things out for his glory, as Romans 11.36 says. What you truly believe comes out in your actions. You ever think about that? Your true theology, I can tell you what you truly believe by how you act. In all circumstances. And Jesus comes and he understands that God will use all of this for our good. Jesus knew that God works out all things for the good and for his glory. And Jesus has just announced that one of the twelve will betray him. He has washed that man's feet. He has broken bread with him. And now that man has left to join those conspiring against him. Jesus knows that God is working good for those who love him. That Jesus will be glorified by these events And that God, his Father, will also be glorified. And that is why Jesus gives this command and goes to the cross in faithful obedience in verses 32 to 33. How is God and Jesus glorified in all of this? The glory is in view of the cross where Jesus will be glorified in that display of his unique ability to satisfy the wrath of the Father, to bear the sins of his people, and to accomplish salvation for his own. The Son of Man will be glorified at the cross because he is infinitely worth, will be seen in the complete satisfaction for sin that only he and he alone can achieve. 
God will be glorified at the cross because his unyielding justice will be upheld as he demonstrates his absolute commitment to righteousness through the punishment of sin. And all, of the, all at the same time, God's incomparable, do you understand his incomparable mercy that he has? This sets the stage for why Jesus what Jesus says to us later, his incomparable mercy will be made possible as Jesus makes propitiation for our sin. I love that word, propitiation. It makes right what our sin made wrong. It satisfies God's wrath that was meant for us And God's matchless love will be demonstrated in his comprehensive commitment to saving his people. God doesn't spare his own son for his own. Because he loves his people. And this, brothers and sisters, is the type of love we are commanded to show to one another. It is out of this love that was shown to us as Christ bore the wrath of his Father for our sins that we are called to love one another. That overflows. It should overflow. Because as verse 35 says, this is a distinguishing mark of Jesus' followers. How we love one another is a distinguishing mark of being a follower of Christ. 1 John 4, 7-12 says it this way. I think you got it up there. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. Beloved, If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. In verses 19 to 21, he continues on. We love because he first loved us. And if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must love his brother. I am completely overwhelmed by the love Jesus has shown me. Completely. I'm completely and utterly undeserving of it. I did absolutely nothing. And these two examples of the men in here, I fit perfectly into one of them. Yet Jesus shows his love. I am undeserving. And the more I grasp the love that Christ has poured out on me, that should push me to love my brothers and sisters in the same way. I'm overwhelmed. 
How does this not push me and you out to show love to our brothers and sisters here at Knollwood? The disciples here are to love one another as Jesus has loved them, and that love is to, be mark, uh, to, to mark them, to distinguish them as their most notable feature is their love. So that all people recognize the Christ-like love of those who follow Jesus. What's going to mark us as our most notable feature? In this day and age, there's a ton, especially with COVID. There's lots of churches who are marking themselves with other things and not this. What do people note you to be like? If someone were to look at your Facebook posts or record your conversations or watch you from afar or to have your room bugged, or your car on the way home from church today, bugged. What is your distinguishing mark? And some of you, you have Facebook posts that you need to start taking down. Some of you are gossiping and whatever else it may be, and you need to stop. And you need to repent of those things, and you need to seek forgiveness from those who you did that to, because that is not the love that Jesus has shown us in this passage that he commands us to. Are you a disciple of Jesus Christ? Do you call yourself a disciple of Jesus Christ? Do you call yourself a Christian? This is the command that your commander-in-chief has told you to do. It's not an option. When Jesus comes along and he tells you to do something, it's not like, oh, Jesus, I'll get to it. Because everything he commands us to do is out of what he has already done for us and his own obedience that he's exemplified for us. This is a command. And the newness of this new commandment can be understood only in the light of the finished work of Jesus. God has always called his people to love their neighbor. We see that in Leviticus 19 in the Old Testament. We shall not, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord, he says. And Jesus talks about it again in Matthew 22. In verse 39, he says, And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But the new commandment switches things around. The greatness of Jesus' love for us is now the motivation for our loving one another. The greatness of Jesus' love for us is now the motivation for us loving one another. If we truly love Jesus, truly and deeply, we will love what he loves and whom he loves. The unlovely, the oppressed, those very different from us, and those whose actions have damaged us. See, this confirming sign of our discipleship is not a badge of our commitment to Jesus, but it's the beauty of Jesus' commitment to us. Disciple is not a program that we just sign up for. It is a whole new way of life for which we have been raised up to. We are to be different than what is happening out there. Love different than what is happening out there. Why? 
because you have been loved. And I need to do a caveat here because I think in our culture we've perverted the word love. In our culture, if I am to love someone, I need to continue to allow them to live in that life. The Bible doesn't allow that. If I truly love someone and I see my brother or sister falling away or in sin, I'm going to call them on it. Not in arrogance, not in a holier-than-thou attitude, but understanding my own brokenness and my own need of a Savior and say to them, look, where you're going is wrong. The love that Jesus shown us is not an allowance for us to continue in our sin. Christ died for your sin. Why in the world do we spend so much time being entertained by the very things that Jesus died for? But it is a sign. And Jesus shows us how we are to love, even as he shows love to the treacherous. But how about those who are unfaithful? Like Peter. I'm Peter, puffed up, always talking before you think it through, good intentions, sincere, often not following through. There's a song that we sing during Christmas. I love this song, and I forget about it every year until Christmas, (laughs) but it's called, Oh, Come All You Unfaithful. I love it. Verse 1 says, O come all you unfaithful, come weak and unstable, come, no, you are not alone. The bridge says this, he's a lamb who was given, slain for our pardon, his promise is peace for those who believe. So in verse 36, we look at the denial. Where I am going, you cannot follow me, Jesus says, but you will follow afterwards. He says that to Peter. And this is a prophecy about Peter's martyrdom. I think we quickly forget. We often read Peter and go, man, Peter, don't you ever get it? Church tradition teaches us that he thinks of himself so unworthy to die the same way as Jesus that he gets crucified upside down because he, he he didn't feel that he was worthy enough to die the same way that his Lord did. But in verse 36, it is a prophecy of his martyrdom. 37, we see that he is sincere. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Peter isn't lying. He's totally, completely sincere with what, he's about to say, what he just said. But he doesn't know his own spiritual weakness his vulnerability to fear. And Peter desires to show the greatest love for Jesus, but sadly in his weakness, he will not be able to do so in the immediate future. And that's what Jesus tells Peter, that he will deny him three times before the rooster crows. Three times. Not once, not twice. Three times. As Jesus asks him a rhetorical question, a very ironic question, actually, in verse 38. Will you lay down your life for me? The irony here is that Jesus is laying down his life for Peter. 
That's why he's here. That's what he's about to do. That's why his soul is troubled. But also that Peter will lay down his life for Jesus 30 years later. We shouldn't mock Peter or be smug as we think we're better than him. Peter had the best of intentions and the best desires, but he failed to live up to them. And you and I, we do the same. Jesus will actually restore Peter in John 21. And I really look forward to John 21. Telling him that in the future, he will have the opportunity to lay down his life for Jesus. See, both Peter and Judas failed Jesus. Judas chose to give up. Peter failed to live up to his best intentions, but he loved Jesus. And later he got another chance and was faithful. Who is more to be loved than Jesus? I find there's great comfort here, and I hope you do too. It's comforting to see how slow the disciples were to understand Jesus' teaching and how reluctant they were to own their brokenness. If, if Jesus could care for these people, then there is hope for a frail, faulty person like me and like you. Jesus is a patient teacher and a most wonderful and merciful Savior. As in Peter's life, Jesus not only foresees our betrayal, he also foresees our restoration. So Jesus calls you and I, come all you unfaithful, come weak and unstable, come now, you are not alone. So what do we do with all of this? We are called to be disciples who make disciples of Jesus Christ. As a church, that's our job. It's a job that's unchanging. For 2,000 years, it's been the same call, the same mission, to be disciples who make disciples of Jesus Christ, to grow in Christ's likeness, to grow in holiness, and to go out into our broken world and to declare the hope that we hold so dear to us. Because our world is broken. It's an overflowing of our witness to a broken world. To be a disciple of Jesus is to love our brothers and sisters in Christ the same way that he has loved us. That overflows into our witness to a broken world. Do you see how Jesus has loved the treacherous and the failures? Do you see how it gives us an example of how we are to love one another? Because no one in this room is perfect. Hate to break it to you, no matter what your mom told you. You're not. And I'm not. We're all broken. And we're all people who are in need of God's amazing grace. If you truly understand the love that Jesus has shown you, there's no room for selfishness. It also pushes us out to action. How can you love your brothers and sisters is the question. This is why we believe in, and hold to membership as a church. It gives us focus as to how we can express that love. It gives us direction. So what do we get when we look at how Jesus loved his disciples? What comes out for us as we, as we come to a greater understanding of how Jesus has loved us? 
It means committing ourselves to loving as he loved. It means leaving whatever place of privilege and luxury we enjoy in order to serve just as Jesus left heaven. It means a willingness to do what God's people need to have done for them, irrespective of how lowly or menial or humiliating the needs might be, just as Jesus washed the feet of his disciples. Anytime someone says to me, and they call themselves a Christian, they say, oh, I, I shouldn't do that, it's, uh, it's below me, or they have that sort of attitude, I always point to Jesus, and I say, but he, Jesus washed people's feet. And he's the one that created everything including the feet. He's the one that created the dirt that was on their feet. He created it all. If there was anyone who had the right to say someone else should do this, it was Jesus. If there was anyone who did not deserve to die for my sin, it was Jesus. Do you understand the love that Christ has done for you? It means laying down our lives for one another the way that Jesus laid down his life for us. We have brothers and sisters around the world who are truly being persecuted for their faith, who regularly have to lay down their life for their brothers and sisters. It means spurring one another on to good works and to grow in Christ-likeness and holiness and addressing sin in each other's lives. This is the type of love that gets our teachers teaching our children at church. Those who drive students to and from church. Those who clean up after our fellowship meals and clean up all the fingerprints that are always from all the kids on the windows. Not with complaining, but with joy, because each fingerprint means that there was a child. This is the kind of love that compels those who listen attentively, and those who know a conversation with someone else is not an opportunity to show off or exalt oneself. This is the kind of love that compels those who pray for things they are asked to pray for, this is a kind of love that gets people to give to support ministry. This is the kind of love that prompts nursery workers to serve parents and children, nursery volunteers to show up on time, and parents to respond with gratitude and service of their own. This is the type of love that isn't held back by a pandemic or vaccination statuses. Yeah, I said it. This is the type of love that can't be done from afar. We must be known for our love. We must love even the unborn children. It compels us to love the unborn children and to speak on their behalf. It, it means that we must love mothers in bad situations who are contemplating abortion. We must love singles who are not sure how they fit in. We must love visitors by noticing new people who seem to be alone. We must love one another as Jesus loved us. It's a command. But it's not something that you can do unless you understand the love that Christ has poured out for you. It is not a love that can be done unless you understand what the cross has done. How serious God took sin. Sin is not to be trifled with. 
It is not to be enjoyed. It is not to be entertained or exalted or laughed at or swept under the rug. I look to the cross and I see all of that as dumb excuses. The cross shows me how I am to love my brothers and sisters. And not just my brothers and sisters, but even our community. We are called to be disciples who make disciples of Jesus Christ. A disciple is someone who is following someone else. Are you a follower of Christ? If you call yourself a follower of Christ, if you feel like you failed in some ways, repent of it, move forward. Jesus' love, this is the main idea, this is the big idea. Jesus' loves the treacherous so that the treacherous can love one another. And that's the point. That's what John says to us. That's what Jesus says to us. A new commandment I give to you. That you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. Even as Jesus loved Judas. Even as Jesus loved Peter. Even as he loved you and called you to himself. Let's pray. Lord, I just help us to love one another as you have loved us. I pray that as we interact with each other after our service, that we would display the love that you have shown us to one another. That, it, that how you have loved us would overflow into our witness to a broken world. That we would be faithful disciples who make disciples of Jesus Christ calling people to repent, calling people to holiness, people who are resting in your grace and your mercy, people who are having a greater awakening to the, to the love that you have poured out on us, and that we would love each other in that same way or seek to love each other in that same way. May we be bright lights for you in this broken city of London. In the name of